are listening to Neurosalience, the OHBM podcast. Welcome to the Neurosalience podcast. I'm Peter Banatini, and I'm the host. Uh, today, we actually had um, two really interesting guests, uh, one PhD candidate and one postdoc. The PhD candidate was Gisela uh, Govart, and the uh, postdoc was uh, Dr. Lineke Jensen. Jensen. And they're both at the um, Max Planck Institute uh, for Human Cognitive and Brain Sciences in Leipzig. And uh, they have started a open science uh, organization uh, there that uh, basically fosters open science good practices. And we had a great discussion about what that actually entailed, uh, how you actually start a grassroots sort of movement. And of course, they, they uh, receive the blessings of their directors, uh, but it really is sort of a bottom-up sort of approach. Uh, and it involves, you know, everything from, uh, and we had a great discussion about this, how do you actually incentivize people to uh, do open science uh, best practices? Uh, everything from uh, pre-registration, which we talked about extensively, and how it actually fosters better science and doesn't really impose limits as people might think. Uh, and, and how do you actually then go from incentivizing people to, to fundamentally changing the culture? And that's the goal, is to change the culture of science in this regard. And uh, so we talked about that. We talked about uh, uh, the benefits of open science, the challenge, some of the challenges. And uh, the discussion actually got uh, more wide ranging at the end in which we talked about uh, how it extends beyond simply how you do your science, but it also extends to how you share your data, how you share your results, how do you include uh, and offer opportunities to diverse uh, individuals and cultures and, and groups. And so, and not only that, I mean, it, it talked, we talked a little bit at the very end about potentially changing uh, the system of review for papers and for research grants. Uh, more with a long-term eye, uh, at least on some of them, uh, as opposed to short-term gains. So, so it was a it was a great discussion that started uh, small and ended up big. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. All right. Welcome to the Organization for Human Brain Mapping Neurosalience Podcast. I'm Peter Banatini. Here I interview neuroscientists and discuss their work as well as the latest developments, issues, and controversies in the field of brain mapping. Uh, open science and all that it entails has been something that's been advanced in the field of brain imaging in many ways for many reasons over the years. And today uh, the trend is picking up momentum with local, regional, and international open science initiatives starting up. In fact, uh, where I work in NIMH, uh, I even started a data sharing team back in 2016, headed up by Adam Thomas to, to, to foster open scientists, science practices. Uh, but there's obviously more to it than, than just that. And other groups are doing different things. Uh, at, at the Max Planck Institute for Human Cognitive and Brain Sciences in Leipzig, 
an open science initiative was started as a grassroots movement uh, by the students and postdocs officially uh, beginning their, uh, their, their initiative on Open Science Day, uh, their talks on May 23rd of 2019. So it's been going on for, for a little while. Uh, and today I talk with two individuals closely uh, involved with this particular movement at the MPI in Leipzig to talk about their own group uh, and their own initiative uh, at Leipzig and open science in general, you know, why it's important, what it entails, how to engage more people in it. Uh, so to begin, uh, Gisela Govart, uh, is, she's a PhD candidate at the Max Planck Institute for Cognitive and Brain Sciences in Leip Leipzig and the Einstein Center for Neuroscience. Her current research is focused on developmental cognitive neuroscience, early language acquisition, phoneme acquisition, and voice processing in infancy. Uh, Dr. Lineke Johnson, her research focus uh, topics include reinforcement learning and decision-making, habitual and goal-directed control of behavior, compulsivity uh, uh, in obesity and addiction, the role of dopamine in compulsive behavior, mechanisms of mindfulness, and behavioral paradigms, uh, neural imaging and interventions, both pharmacological and, and behavioral. So even though I both I introduced both of you and, and destroyed your names in the process, uh, uh, why don't you introduce yourselves uh, and just say a little bit about yourself uh, uh, as well, uh, just so people can associate your name with your, with your voice. Whoever wants to start, uh, maybe Gisela, yeah, Gisela. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I'll repronounce my name. Okay, sorry. <laughs> it was completely fine. Um, yeah, my name is actually Gisela Govard. So I'm actually in the uh, in the neuropsychology department with Professor Federici, and then I'm in the uh, early language acquisition group with uh, Claudia Mena. Um, and I work on early language acquisition. Um, and uh, yeah, in my PhD, what I do is I use uh, EEG to investigate phoneme acquisition in infancy and the role of voice information um, in that process. Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, um, my name is Lineke Janssen. Well, it was actually a very good job also. Like <laughs> these Dutch names are difficult. Um, I'm also <laughs> Dutch. Um, I currently work as a postdoc in the O-Brain Lab uh, and you mentioned already, or we are investigating decision-making in diet-induced obesity. That's the short story uh, with a strong focus on um, the role of the neurotransmitter dopamine. And um, like the methods that we use um, are, it's a combination of behavioral neuroimaging, but also physiological measurements. Okay. Okay. Well, we can definitely, yeah, definitely um, uh, uh, talk about uh, how your own research lends itself mm. to to open science or how you would do your studies uh, differently with open science versus not open science approaches. So just as a, uh, as a, just a point of reference. So are there any other people that you would want to mention that might be involved in this project? <laughs> so there's actually many um, that makes us a bit reluctant to mention names. Um, we have a very dynamic team with a very uh, variable uh, engagement levels or yeah exactly um, I think the main point here is that that our team consists predominantly of early career researchers um, from the Max Planck Institute for Human Cognitive Brain Sciences uh, yeah okay okay and um, yeah so I'm, I'm, I'm actually I, I, I know uh, very well of uh, uh, the Max Planck Institute in Leipzig and and uh, 
you know, it's, it's interesting. I've, I visited there a few years ago and it's a great place. I mean, there's, there's uh, Angelo Federici, which I think she's still the director, right? Is she, uh, or, okay. And then, uh, yeah, Arnold Villinger, Nicholas Weisskopf, Christian Doller. Um, mm. are, so are, uh, so which group are you in? Uh, uh, I'm in the, I'm in the neurology department with Arnold oh. Willinger. Yeah. Okay. Okay, great. great. But we have in the in the team we have people from all different departments and also uh, independent research groups. That's okay. quite nice for for our initiative that it really crosses. Um, it's really across departments, and I think that's important. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. So let's just uh, just just to begin. What what initially motivated you to start this initiative? Uh, you know, what, what was it some sort of, you know, thing that you thought, oh, uh, you know, what we're doing is wrong or, or, you know, is there, you know, was there, I mean, you said you, you emphasize in your, in your blog post that it was sort of a bottom up uh, sort of thing. Uh, so what motivated you and how did you actually get it going? Yeah, I can say a little bit about that. Um, I think it was by the end of 2018 that it was quite clear um, that there was a growing interest in open science practices and in particular in the topic of pre-registration. You would hear the topic more and more in hallway conversations at coffee machines. Um, that was the informal part. Um, but also in institute-wide meetings, the topic would come up. So the question would come up, hey, did you consider pre-registering your study? Uh, why not? Or how did you do that? Um, but what also became quite clear is that so many people were struggling with how, how to really go about it. Where, where do you start if you pre-register your study? Um, can I even invest my precious time? Um, who can I ask for advice? Um, and that's actually like this, that's when we, um, yeah, we started talking about it more and more and, then, and that sort of momentum we used to, to start this grassroots initiative. Um, with the blessing of the directors of the institute, that was that was a, an important um, uh, motivation actually to yeah. to get an initiative, to get organized, and to get started. Yeah. Yeah, and and so it just started mostly through pre-registration, uh, uh, through the idea, the, the discussion of like things like pre-registration. So that I think was the the main topic that uh, kept coming back. Um, there were definitely other topics that if you would ask people um, what aspects of open science they would like to work on or are interested in uh, that they would mention like it's like data sharing um, but pre-registration came back uh, mostly so yeah yeah um, yeah so so I mean as far as that's concerned you initial your initial offering was sort of like well basically it was sort of like the idea that um, let's maybe, start to change the culture in some sense or start talking about it. And, and I see on your website as well that you, you offer you know, some training or some, maybe some tools for helping people uh, pre-register, you know, maybe some resources and things like that. And, and uh, um, yeah, I can imagine that, that it's, I mean, we can talk about this more a little bit later, but it's initially it's hard because, you know, especially, you know, I, I know, I know, um, I know Arno and I know Nick Weisskopf uh, as far as the, you know getting adherence from the directors and and you know I know I I, I you know Arno is a little bit uh, especially Arno but also maybe Nick a little bit is uh, you know in, so my old experiments like I, when I used to work I 
I, I would have thought, you know, because I think most researchers, and this is, the, this is the hard part, and maybe we could talk about it now, but the hard part, at least with pre-registration for, for us, uh, for maybe physicists who just like, you know, they tweak a pulse sequence, they try something, uh, they see if it works on one person, and they maybe do five more and write a paper because it's like a proof of concept sort of thing. Uh, and it's, it's hard. Uh, and it's, it's, uh, and there's certain studies obviously that lend themselves more to pre-registration than others. And, and I think that's, you know, what, what would you say about that as far as part of the education? Uh, it's not only giving people resources, but sort of, you know, talking to them and saying, Hey, you know, pre-registration isn't that hard, or this is how you could do pre-registration. Um, oh, so it's, it's a very valid point, and it's a discussion that has come up um, also at the Institute, um, uh, that, that it, it does, like, pre-registration itself m might not work for all types of studies, at least not the kind of pre-registration that confirmatory studies. Um, that doesn't mean we don't, we shouldn't learn more about it and yep. we shouldn't learn about the other possibilities. Um, there's also ideas on how to pre-register exploratory studies, um, for us. So it didn't stop us from setting up this, this, um, this initiative. Um, and yeah, I don't know if you want to talk about that now. You, you mentioned it a bit earlier that, um, uh, how did you mention I will stop here. <laughs> Gisela, do you want to add something there? Yeah, definitely on the on the topic of pre-registration. I mean, um, I think what happened with our um, our initiative is that we uh, we were just in the beginning. There was a lot of peer-to-peer -peer information exchange, so we were just all together trying to learn what uh, how to do this. There were some people that had already pre-registered and um, people that were learning and. Um, so we organized a workshop, uh, things like that, but also like over the course of the last years, um, we have been discussing a lot also about um, certain types of studies that might be a lot more difficult uh, to pre-register, um, what the benefits, what the actual benefit of pre-registration is. So for me, for example, that's mostly transparency. So I would say that uh, definitely also exploratory research um, can be pre-registered or um, at least also these kind of formats be used as, as, a, as a template to um, meticulously also uh, document what you're doing. Um, so I think the, the, the cool thing in this, um, in this initiative is really like this constant learning. So everyone, um, people have different uh, levels of, uh, of knowledge and there's just a lot of uh, information exchange. And uh, you realize like after a while, how much you've learned by just interacting um, with each other. And then when new people uh, enter, you suddenly realize like, hey, all these things that I'm uh, that I thought are just completely um, uh, clear might not be clear for new people. And then you suddenly realize like, hey, okay, so this is what, what I've learned in a year or a year and a half by basically just um, interacting with each other. And I think yeah. that's really a powerful yeah, part. Can I, can I add to that? So sure. uh, thought that came up, um, I think um, of additional value that like, of course you can like, 
focus on the challenges and where it's difficult, where um, it can stop you from actually going that way um, and uh, increasing your, your knowledge about how, how to pre-register or what open science is uh, to be against. Um, but I think um, by, over, or by not focusing on the challenges, but actually the opportunities, um, you can do exactly what Gisela says, we grew so much um, over the past years um, by actually focusing on what's possible and how we can actually try to overcome some of the challenges um, that are out there. Yeah, so- Yeah, and also realizing, sorry, I just- Yeah, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I have yeah. one small thing, um, especially for pre-registration, also realizing that it might not be the tool for everyone, right? So maybe your oh. research doesn't lend itself uh, for this, or maybe you prefer another way to increase uh, transparency and that um, is and should be completely fine. Um, yeah. As long as people understand what pre-registration is and can do, um, I think that is just basically the main goal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so um, and, and I think you're right. I think a lot of people, when they think of pre-registration, they think of something extremely confining and, and, and you know, it, it does, it does uh, commit to you uh, to a certain line. Um, you mentioned, one thing that you mentioned about pre-registration, you said that you can also have exploratory studies in pre-registration. How, just out of curiosity, how would, how would that, let's say somebody wanted to, you know, like, or even, or even, even the idea, I mean, there's two types. I mean, I think of like, you know, open science also is like, you know, pooling all your data and sharing your data and, and having discovery science. So, you know, sharing all, you know, that's sort of open science, but that's explicitly not, you know, it, it's sort of pre-registering it to say, look, there's this data, uh, but, uh, but now we'll, we'll try to find correlations from it uh, that relate. How, how do those fit together? So how, how do you have exploratory and, and pre-registration potentially? For an exploratory um, uh, study, you can also, before you start already pre-register uh, certain things, and then for me, like if there's if the main benefit is is transparency, then uh, you can also um, uh, just keep a uh, a good log of all the things that you're doing, and then uh, yeah, and then you combine these tools basically. Yeah, yeah. I think an I think an interesting point here that came up um, when we had an fMRI pre-registration um, pre template hackathon um, is that aren't many of the, at least fMRI studies that we are doing, um, even though we sell them or, or we, we say they're confirmatory or we write the pre-registration or the paper as if it's confirmatory, aren't they actually quite exploratory in nature? You know, this is uh, a bit of a, <laughs> you can debate about that. Um, but I think in the first place, it's good to consider to, to zoom out a little bit from your own studies and think, okay, is this really a confirmatory study or is it exploratory? Um, and when then pre-registering that study, you can totally also um, write a protocol as specific as you can for um, your plans for exploration. Um, that might not be the picture perfect uh, pre-registration as some people consider pre-registration should be of confirmatory studies, but it's not impossible. And it's definitely worth the while, I think. 
Okay. And I would also say it can be a picture perfect uh, pre-registration for an exploratory study, right? Because there are different yeah. things yeah. that you uh, would need. It's just that the emphasis of pre-registering is yeah. often on confirmatory studies, yeah. and that's not always yeah, made very explicit. Yeah, um, exactly. It, that's interesting. Okay. All right. Yeah, no, I, I can see how you could actually have uh, many different, like you said, many different types of, of pre-registration. And, um, and as long as it, it's, it's, you know, you specify what you're looking for ahead of time and, you know, within a certain time frame, and be very transparent about the methods that you use. Yeah, you know, the, anything to avoid, you know, right. I, I think that one of the big problems uh, with neuroimaging data is so multidimensional, it's so, it's so rich uh, that you know we're still trying to figure out how to look at it, but at the same time, there's that risk for for doing p hacking, you know, where you just sort of you know, sort of figure out what looks good and then and then and then say, oh well, that was you know, you know, we hypothesize that this happens and and it happens, so it avoids that uh, that sort of uh, loop. Um, and even though that's great, so that's actually an interesting thing. Uh, so uh, with 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 pre registration. If you, I mean, it's always interesting if you don't find something that you're looking for, but you do find something else, uh, it, it's, it's, yeah, you can still report it, but it's not like what you were looking for, I guess. And you just have to be clear. It's all about transparency, as Gisela already said. Yeah. Um, and maybe the papers get a bit more, um, um, I don't want to say dull, but <laughs> they might get a bit more, um, rich and less of a um, uh, fancy story to just sell results. But I think that would be a good development in science. Of course, it yeah. has to be still readable and uh, the important fact should not disappear in a long list of things that you've done. Um, but you can definitely, yeah. Yeah, no, I I'm, I'm definitely think that uh, having, you know, and actually that's that's an interesting question as well. So so anyway, let me just um, go a little bit further on here. So you know, you mentioned the um, the bottom up approach again, and, and so 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 basically, you you got the endorsement, you know, it's okay from your directors, and um, and then you basically you probably had organize, you know, you 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 have a lot, you work together across uh, um, uh, you know across the groups. And just talking to, to to researchers and whatever, and and so okay, so you got that going in that sense. Um, so is there? Do you think there's an advantage? Like you were mentioning uh, in your blog that you know there's a lot of times where you have you know like a a position statement by the directors. Let's say you know the directors got together and said, oh, this is very important, but it may not have the same uh, ability to be uh, actually implemented uh, if it's top down versus bottom up. I mean, a lot of times there are most most things are sort of top down in the sense where the OHBM might say this is an important thing, or the standards committee might say this is you know you should be doing this. But your bottom up, I think, does sort of touch upon you know the individual researchers within a group. It's sort of on that scale where you sort of help. Uh, um, but is there a way that you're trying to, you know, it seems like there's many open science uh, initiatives sort of springing up uh, all over the place. Um, 
and it seems that they're they tie into they have their their resources is there any or is it, it might be premature uh like a sense of trying to become a network uh sort of to mm -hmm. coordinate your your open science initiatives across other groups you mentioned the netherlands uh you mentioned some other groups but uh is there you know there it seems like there's potential of of forming you know some sort of consortium Pointing forces, right? That would be great. Yeah. Um, but let me first say something about the like um, the grassroots, um, the advantage of that. So I think um, even though the the uh, support of the directors really helped to get started, first of all to motivate people or to encourage people to join the team. Um, uh, second, to to get resources to actually organize an open science day and. Is, um, I have to admit we are quite privileged to be able to do that. Um, but so I think the organization that we have really, um, um, how to put it, um, we reach really a lot of people in the Institute. We, we, we are also quite <laughs> active. <laughs> um, what did I say? Why did I say that? You, you started off by, by what, what, how did well, you start to, your question again? To form like a bigger network uh, across other institutes or? Uh, so then, yeah, that was the second part but before, yeah. Okay, I'll get, I'll get to the second part. Yeah, yeah, no, no, that's fine. That, but that's actually an interesting, um, but let me just, uh, uh, when you say you're active uh, within the Institute, it's, it's, it really is, yeah. I mean, and I, I'll talk about this a little bit, sort of the, the, the attempts of changing the culture uh, of, mm. of how people think about doing their research. I mean, that's that seems like it's really hard uh, in that regard. It is. It's very hard to get people to change. Um, they have to be motivated themselves to change, um, and that we try to do by empowering them to um, to to use more open science or good scientific practices, however you want to call it, um, and by doing it bottom up. Um, I think reach quite a large audience that will take it with them to higher levels yeah. on, on yeah. the academic letter. Um, and that's the, well, slowly that will, will be the change that we, we need. Um, of course, we need also change now, but we, we need to make structural changes that last, that are carried on to um, throughout academic careers. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and what I mean, the fact that we're a bottom-up initiative with uh, mostly Erdekover researchers also means that the threshold is extremely low, I think, for people to join, mm -hmm. um, that the threshold is low to ask questions, um, that there is really, um, like, easy opportunities, I would say, to learn. And I think maybe the most powerful way to uh, change people is really by, 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 by letting them learn, right? By not posing things uh, upon yeah. people, but by really uh, having this, again, this information exchange um, between people um, and also letting people decide uh, which practices fit for their research and uh, that they can do it step by step. You don't have to do everything in your first project you can yeah that's a good point first start with one practice and then add things on top and um yeah the more i think you push people um 
you can also um, um, get quite the opposite effect. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that actually, um, right, I, I agree. I think that, that you know, at least at the NIH, uh, you know, we were trying to foster, for instance, data sharing or things like that. I mean, to, to change the culture of science, uh, it seems that the incentives, you know, are big, a big aspect. I mean, you can't just, I mean, if you have a top-down, there's an advantage. There's one advantage of being doing top-down is that you can just impose this rule. <laughs> yeah. um, but that's obviously not the ideal way. You want to, you want to have a change in the culture such yeah. that people will want to see an advantage. And this is the tricky part because, you know, everyone right now, as they're learning about this, they think, oh, this is good, but is it really you know, like you were saying before, like educating people on how it actually helps your paper have a higher impact. Well, um, what are the benefits, right? So, right, and, exactly. and how do they differ for different people? Like there is a huge variety and kind of benefits that people, that can drive people to change their behavior. Right. Um, one example there is like what we've heard um, repeatedly is, hey, um, can, you, can you give us some numbers of how um, of how um, or measures of how open science helps science. Um, that that is one way of going about that. You have a sort of evidence based use of open science practices. I'm, I'm not so convinced that that is necessary. Um, so I personally believe that um, it should be a given to practice science transparently. Um, try to increase reproducibility because these are important values. We want to get at a truth rather than cool stories. We want to build knowledge together rather than just competitively. Um, these should basically be the values that drive uh, the work that we do. Um, and if that's, <laughs> if you really need evidence, yeah. Uh, so I'm not so, such, so convinced of, of measurable effects of open science. Um, although I totally understand that for, for like, given the, the brief contracts many people have or fixed term contracts, there have to be some benefits and that can also be in the, uh, in the shape of um, a bit increased financial or job security. Um, but that's a very different kind of benefit than for example, an evidence-based way of um, practicing open science. Yeah. Um, what do we need? Yeah, yeah, I'm just trying to, yeah, I'm thinking in terms of, right, I mean, you know, my own struggles at the NIH actually, I mean, uh, just basically having, saying, oh, so apart from pre-registration or best practices, um, and hopefully the culture will be such that, I mean, obviously people uh, just wanna get their paper out and they'd like to have the highest impact, but also they get reviewed uh, and that's potentially a top-down thing. I mean, they get reviewed, you know, in terms of, promotions or, you know, and, and once the culture sort of permeates that can kind of bubble up to the top and then people can start saying, hey, how many, how many pre-registered reports do you have? And as opposed to how many papers in nature you have, you know, that, that's- How much data do you share, et cetera? Mm -hmm. Right, right. And I think that that's, I mean, it sort of starts the ground level and it kind of goes up and iterates. And I also, I think that the, you know, Max Planck is similar. Uh, to the NIH in some sense where, you know, you, you're under this sort of this, you know, there's a certain amount of control uh, that you can, you know, you can influence people. Whereas academic institutions um, seem like they're a little bit more, you know, each 
PIs like a, you know, a little kingdom of, onto themselves and they do what they want. And there's no, it seems like in Max Planck or the NIH where you have, you know, groups that are all, you know, they have a budget and they're all potential for, for coordinating things better uh, in that regard. So it's, and also still not to say that bottom up is important, but, uh, but having, having that cohesion, uh, it might be a good place for these sort of initiatives to really take hold in that regard, where you have more, uh, a little bit more cohesion across groups. Um, see. I think basically, I think basically, like the the um, em empowering of open science should happen at all uh, academic stages. Yeah, um, I totally agree. Or career stages. Sorry. Um, so even though we do this grassroots initiative, we also do try to reach um, um, across all career stages. Uh, we really try to um, include the directors. Um, and senior researchers to also support staff. Um, so it's not just about researchers. Um, uh, even. And I think yeah. that's important to, to include the whole bunch. Basically. Yeah. 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 And I mean, what you say about uh, permeating through uh, different layers, I think is very important because if you just start um, uh, with some top down uh, rules or guides, then it's also always the question uh, who is going to set these rules and who is going to set these guides, which will, of course, always be the more um, uh, powerful voices that might have very different needs than, um, for example, uh, early career researchers mm -hmm. or um, uh, people from different research cultures also. So there's um, conflicting goals, right? Exactly. Yes. And yeah. therefore, it's also, I think it's not only important to think about uh, benefits for uh, certain open science practices, but also how certain open uh, science practices could potentially harm certain uh, people at certain career stages and to uh, also discuss that and to see how to, how you can sort of mitigate um, uh, these effects. Um, yeah, that's interesting. That's actually a really good point. Um, yeah, I mean, you don't want, right, the people in power are just sort of creating rules or, or situations that, have, that help them and, and sort of at the expense of others. Uh, having it grassroots driven and sort of iterating in some sense would be ideal. Uh, but it does seem that we're at this early stage, like, you know, when I look around, you know, I see Talia Crony, who sort of like was an early proponent of everything like this. Um, uh, Russ Poldrak, you know, he has his open neuro, uh, you know, in which it goes even, you know, it's pre-registration, code sharing, data sharing, uh, you know, standards, bids, things like that. Um, and it does seem that, that right now we're kind of at this stage where, where there are, you know, you're a little bit ahead of the game in terms of your group starting things up at, in your group, but it, it is nice to see that there's other, you know, potential groups starting up and it would be really cool to sort of have that sort of start to crystallize and, and you know, from the bottom up and crystallize and change the culture in, in that regard. And actually, you know, and I think what you were saying, a, a big aspect of this is not really understanding uh, uh, what it means. I mean, uh, you know, everyone's research, you know, researchers get trained in their method. Uh, they might get trained in statistics. They might get trained in, uh, you know, the brain. Um, 
And then they just ask their questions. And so, you know, part of a graduate student's job is sort of like just to figure out how to ask better questions that are testable. And this could be part of it. I mean, this could be, you know, a big part of that. And I think that it's really great what you're, what you're doing as far as that's concerned. Um, are there other, okay, so, so are there other ways you're, so there's pre-registration, there's tools. Are you trying to, it seems a very practical thing that people could see immediate benefit from is sharing code or sharing data. Is that, are you trying to take that on at your center as well? Um, uh, mm. Yeah, so uh, sharing code is not a, a big topic, although I, I think many would like to uh, doing it, but, or like to be doing that. Um, the, the data sharing topic is a, is a bigger um, uh, point at the same time, also an issue because we work with these complex um, neuroimaging data that are very hard if not impossible to anonymize. And with the current yep. um, legislation in Europe, um, like it's, it's really difficult to share these data and um, at least um, it, it, like it requires um, some work. And we have in the Institute of Data Protection Officer um, who, who spent a lot of time on figuring that out. Um, yeah. Should That's I say tricky. something else about yeah. that? Do you have something to add to that? No, I think this is something that we have been discussing a lot over the last mm -hmm. years, also in collaboration with our uh, data protection officers. And um, we're still trying to figure out what would uh, what possible uh, best practices would be uh, with the kind of data that most yeah. people in our institute uh, have to deal with. Um, yeah, uh, it's, I mean, it's a very interesting uh, topic. Um, it's also complex uh, yeah. because it also requires actually knowledge about certain, um, um, how do you say this, like law things? Yeah, that legislation. Yeah, like legal, legal issues. Yeah, yeah, legal issues that might. Um, that are not, not experts person, on. And that are not necessarily very black or white. Like, um, exactly. Um, yeah, that's that tricky. Like it's very, it's very uh, challenging. Uh, I'm definitely at the NIH, we have, you know, we're trying to form a, a pool data set and, and yeah, and anytime you have that, um, you know, the first question is, is it properly made anonymous? And, and you're like, well, of course, I mean, some people think it's really easy. Some people think, oh, you just take off the face uh, if it's three-dimensional data. And then, then other people might say, well, it's, you know, you can still look at brain gyral patterns that can identify people if you really are looking carefully. Um, you know, you put that into a machine learning algorithm, you can easily identify features uh, that, and so then where do you wanna, where, where would you want to, yeah, draw that line in terms of, and also and also big, a, big a big thing that we have that's a problem is, um, you know, you write a protocol for doing a study and certain groups don't allow the data to be analyzed in different ways uh, that's different from that protocol. Mm, yeah, it depends on the ethics um, uh, approval you get, right? Right, mm -hmm. right. And so that all has to be somehow worked through. I don't think it's impossible. You know, I, and, and I don't think you'll ever get a perfect answer. Uh, I think that the better our machine learning approaches are, the more you'll be able to sort of identify features that are unique to individuals. Um, 
And that's almost impossible. I mean, it, it's sort of it's sort of exactly as opposed to another goal of fMRI, and that is to identify individuals. <laughs> is to is to sort of say, oh, this individual has schizophrenia, or this individual has this problem, and so it's a trick. It's really it's a hard. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be interesting, and that's a different culture. That's like a legal culture thing. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. But okay, so how, so, um, all right. So, uh, you know, there's other types of, I, I think in general though, right, let's just, let's, let's, you know, put, put data sharing aside. Code sharing would be really, I think this is what people look at as immediately useful. If you, if yeah. you contribute your code, your impact potentially is much larger. Uh, but also like you were saying, transparency. Um, it seems that, uh, you know, a lot of groups are finding, you know, there's this whole re uh, reproducibility crisis, um, partially because of people doing p-hacking and, and not pre-registering, but also it's because they, in their data, um, they don't report as many metrics as they could in terms of stability and, and things like that. Are you trying to, uh, is there any way of fostering that? Uh, you know, I know that in the standards committee at OHBM, we're trying to say, oh, with every time series, you can get metrics and that, you know, relate to stability, you know, standard deviation, ghosting, outliers, things like that. And it'd be really useful. It's super useful for people to have that data um, if they're actually using it uh, back to the data sharing. But if they're, you know, just even reporting mm -hmm. it, like I could imagine like you do a pre-registered study and then you say, Oh, we didn't find this, but look, you know, this data had these metrics that were kind of not the best. And we did what we could to correct it, but it's, it wasn't the best. And that sort of like points to that, as opposed to saying there's some problem with fMRI or something like that. It's more the time series, you know, it'd be nice to report metrics with your papers as well. So starting standards or something like that. But these are all ideas that I'm just you know. <laughs> I think it's good ideas. Um, I'm not sure what I, <laughs> if I can say much more about it. Yeah. <laughs> than that. Yeah. Um, there, are, there are some standards um, for for um, sharing, um, or not for sharing, for reporting fMRI data, for example. Right? And I always have to look it up. With the, yeah. So just as a quick I example. So, so I, just to back. I mean, I didn't mean to. Uh, diverge that too much. But um, I think what, what people I think would be interested in hearing is like you're designing, you know, you do you design studies all the time. And so how are you, how, how actually are you designing the study differently um, uh, with open science practices versus, versus let's say, you know, this were 10 years ago or whatever. Um, how, how is your thought process uh, different and how does it help your, your, how you know practically speaking, um, how how does it help? Um, so I think what what can be done, but not like it's not necessarily done yet. But um, um, if you do all the work that you tend to do after data acquisition, like thinking of the statistical model that you're going to use, um, corrections, how to to define your outliers, etc. If you do all that thinking already in advance, then um, I think you have a much um, more transparent and 
uh, robust study also. And this is ideally what pre-registration helps you to do yep. to define all these things beforehand. It just mm -hmm. makes the process before data acquisition a bit longer. It will make the process of data analysis a bit more concrete, I would yeah. say. Um, yeah. Um, and I was going to refer to the COVIDAS um, uh, yeah. guidelines for um, it's a statement on how to report uh, neuroimaging research. I'm, I'm honestly not aware of like, these metrics that you mentioned, whether they are also mentioned in there. Like that. Yeah, these no. Are additional. Yeah, believe it or not, we're, we're, I just interviewed, I, I'm actually working a little bit with the COVIDAS people like Tom Nichols and, and mm -hmm. starting a, they're starting thinking about a COVIDAS too. And, uh, and this is one of the things that they want to do. That's interesting. Yeah, that would be super relevant. Yeah. Um, so so I, I really mm -hmm. like your answer though, regarding um, how it helps people. It, and it's important to emphasize this, is that it really, you know, it's not just something extra you have to do uh, in terms of pre-registration. Yes, it is, but it's, it's fostering good practices uh, where, you're, where you're thinking carefully about the analysis. You're thinking it all through upfront. It and saves you a lot of thinking later. Yeah, and not only your analyses, but uh, what I also realized also your the theories that you're building on. So mm -hmm. what kind of theories would have what kind of predictions? And you think it's all clear. And then as soon as you're really starting to write it down and um, starting to think about it more and more, first you get a lot more confused, at least that's what happened with me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then in the end, um, I think it's, it's just very helpful to do all this thinking beforehand and not only afterwards. Of course, you also need to do it afterwards and uh, that's also very valuable, um, yeah. but to look at your theories and what kind of predictions that they uh, would, um, would generate, I think that's also very helpful. And another thing that I um, often think about is uh, actually this code sharing. So uh, the soon as you start writing code with the idea in the back of your head that you're going to share this, you're going to be so much more meticulous in how you document stuff and how yeah. you um, comment stuff. Yeah. Um, and that will just make you very, very happy in two years. Yeah. So it's all, it's just basically good at having good, yeah, good, uh, enforcing good practices, uh, things that people should be doing anyway, uh, and, and enforcing uh, or trying to create a culture where they do this up front. And this is a way of showing that they're doing this up front. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And if they they share the, their data, they'll they'll make it a little bit more, you know, they'll, you know, document it better. Their code, they'll document better, they'll write better. And if they pre-register their, their data, they'll they'll think more carefully about it up front. But the what? question is whether whether enforcing would be uh, necessary. So I would envision a scientific culture in which we do not need to enforce certain mm -hmm. practices in the sense that we we tell people that they have to because otherwise they, I don't know, don't get into a certain, um, they don't get a certain prize or they don't get grant money or something like that. Right. Or a nice badge. Have a research, <laughs> exactly, or a badge. So we have a research culture in which... Um, uh, we can just do these kind of things because we want to do them because we know that these are ethical things to do mm. because um, we enjoy them because, um, yeah. 
it's not only the system of publish and perish and um, the individuals getting played out against each other, but uh, if we would have, for example, or if we were to have a more uh, collaborative research culture um, in which people also have a little bit more stable working conditions. I think those are all things that that all play together in, um, and that it would be so much more fruitful to change those things than to enforce. Um, yeah. yeah, I yeah. totally agreed. <laughs> yeah, we're, it, it goes back to the incentive, incentive uh, mm. yes. question. And, and the incentive is part of the, part of changing the culture is the incentive as well. People generally like to do what people in general think is good. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. um, so, but that cultural change is on its way uh, and I have good hopes that that is gonna uh, come through. And this gets back to your point um, about the networks and to join forces with other initiatives. I think that's very important to do, uh, to not be an isolated initiative. Um, maybe this has to be the case for some because there's not many people or other initiatives around but it totally pays off to look around carefully in your um, institute, in your university, in your town, <laughs> in Europe, like at all, all levels, you can find um, like-minded people or initiatives and at least connect, see what they're doing, how they share resources um, and maybe even um, start networks. Um, so in Germany, there are uh, two networks um, like that, um, that's, it, it's relatively new, I would say. So there, there were the initiatives before the networks, of course, um, but it's starting to become more important to join forces in these networks. I think we can have much bigger impact, um, um, like that. And, and maybe one other point here to mention is that you can think of researchers trying to uh, foster open science and having these initiatives. Um, but it's also very important to think of other stakeholders here, like funding agencies, um, yep. publishers, um, politics. And um, I think it's very important to also exchange with them. This was recently done um, in Berlin. Um, so, so different stakeholders were invited to a, a joint discussion and that um, that was very insightful so there's there the, the topic of open science and good scientific practice like these different stakeholders have different focus points and it's very good to to hear about these different focus points but also about the commonalities um, or the, the the shared focus points that we have um, and together i think we can really make a difference Hope. Yeah. Also, these networks, it's just, it gives you also a, maybe a bigger sense of belonging or so. This yeah. gets a little bit like uh, philosophical, but uh, the soon as soon as you also realize that there are so many other people mm -hmm. um, doing very similar things and you actually start interacting um, with them. Um, yeah, it, I think it gives also energy to an, an initiative. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And it seems like you're right at the edge of, of, of you know, something bigger happening, definitely. Um, I think everyone's aware of these things and they keep on, you know, the, with OHBM at least, it's also trying to be pushed. And, and yeah, I think it can do nothing but, but grow. Um, and I think that people have to realize as well that, you know, once again, uh, I think more people are being incentivized, but 
you know, there are people still, you know, and, and it's important to emphasize that doing things like the registration uh, and being transparent is not necessarily opposed to, you know, a lot of people do science where they look for serendipitous things to happen. You know, sometimes, sometimes you might have an unexpected result. Uh, that's that's something significant, and and there's nothing to stop one from designing a study based on some observation for pursuing that hypothesis. Then, so no, no, um, absolutely yeah. not. That's we should not start doing the scientific that. process, right? I right. mean, right. Like, so and here you have to generate hypotheses. You cannot only be testing hypotheses. You have to generate them. So you need also these, um, yeah, theory so building. Data collection, data analysis, and also mm -hmm. thoughts, also thinking. Yeah. Also, so this yeah. sometimes gets forgotten a little bit in, in um, certain open science discussions because it's all about reproducing findings. Of course, you, you want to also reproduce <laughs> exploratory findings subsequently. Um, but so there should definitely still be room for exploratory work for good, well-funded, uh, well, well, how do you say that? Um, Well-designed. Well, well-designed exploratory work, of course, yes. um, and that's also um, a task for funders to to keep funding that or fund that maybe even more, um, and for the researchers to be very clear about what kind of research they're doing. Um, yeah, and for everyone, yeah. okay, and for all open science advocates to also not forget this. Yeah. Yeah. Very be very clear so. that this is a very important part of science, and that no yeah. one wants to. Um, ask people to stop doing that. that right. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, yeah. I mean, that, there's always a certain amount of, even at the beginning of a study, sometimes you have a pilot study and you're just sort of iterating to work out some of the kinks and the, yeah. some of the issues and the problems. And, and that's all still good. It's just a matter of sort of getting it settled and then you, and then you do approve yeah. registration. So it's never. And it's just a matter of being transparent, right? You can document mm. everything. And as, as long as you're doing that, there's, yeah. Right. Right, and that's yeah, actually a really important thing to, yeah, I totally agree. Um, so where do you see this? Uh, so just as we, as we get close to the end here. Um, so, I mean, obviously this is also adaptable to an ever changing landscape of, of methods as well. And, 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 you know, as the methods get more sophisticated, you know, hopefully if anything, it will, it will allow the field to adapt faster since things are so transparent. Uh, uh, and go from there. But where do you see um, uh, where do you see this? I mean, the ultimate goal is what? I mean, what would you imagine like this movement, you know, is growing? And or maybe in 20 years, let's say it's it keeps on developing. How do you think science might look different in 20 years if if this keeps on going the way you want? <coughs> How, how it would be, how would it be transformed? I mean, uh, um, I know it's, it's kind of an open, it's, it's not, there's no right answer. It's just sort of speculate. It's the whole point is to sort of speculate, you know, it's good to be pushing this, but let's say you, you've arrived. What's the, what's the end? Uh, the end. <laughs> or what's the state of like, oh, this is, we're finally, the world is doing science properly um, or whatever. Uh, uh, they'll, they'll never reach that point. Well, nobody ever reaches that point. But <laughs> um, what would you imagine, like, for instance, OHBM or the, the brain mapping community? Um, uh, you know, obviously, an answer would be everyone would be doing this in some sense. But 
I guess the question is more along the lines of, uh, you know, how is science transformed uh, yeah. by this? So I think Isela has a nice answer to this, and I would also have some things in mind to, to you know, apply to your question. <laughs> uh, yeah, so like in the sense of what, what would be an, open, an ideal open science community or how would the science uh, scientific landscape look like? So for me, actually, uh, diversity and equity is a very important point. So what I think we really need is a community on the one hand in which uh, people are are kind i think kindness is very important um open for uh, all kinds of different voices and also uh, critical voices so um that criticism can be heard um be interacted with in a in a kind and constructive um manner that it's not only the most powerful people um that can talk but that um that everyone's uh, is heard um, so I don't think that open science can really truly work if we don't also open up uh, science and include these diverse voices such that we can be also aware of different kind of needs that uh, different people in different situations um, um, might, might need. Um, so if we want sort of open science to take over the world, uh, mm -hmm. which I think would be a, a good thing, uh, we do need uh, this feeling that everyone um, is is invited and to contribute and and can feel also included and therefore willing to um, to take part in it. Um, yeah, so that can mean that there are different focuses for different uh, different people from different fields or um, uh, different parts of the world or different kind of research cultures. Um, and for example, for some pre-registration will be important and helpful. And uh, for others, they might choose other ways to transparently document. Um, and what I think is that this sort of the possibility to have this dialogue um, is, is um, yeah, uh, yeah, really important. And yeah, so this this what I said, this kindness, but also a collaboration. So what I think is that uh, currently the scientific culture is, is still quite individualized. So yeah. um, um, I think what we need is a lot more collaboration and probably for that we also need, uh, so we need definitely different incentives, different ways how to um, also um, um, review people. Um, if this is the right word for that. Um, and research assessment, I think is what exactly. you're looking for, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So different ways of research assessment and probably also um, more job security such that people can also take time to um, implement certain practices, take time to, uh, for example, spend one or two years only on exploratory research or on theory building or um, yeah, on, on other things that just take a lot of time and that might be uh, risky, but and not end up with a fancy nature paper, but be in the end very valuable. That's, yeah. I'm, I'm totally with you on that, Kisela. Um, and I was thinking of some, some additional um, concrete things that I would like to see, more solutions to, to problems or challenges that we have at the moment. I think um, so. One big big thing that I would love to see changed. I'm not sure how, but if we could work towards a different publication system 
that is more modern and, and more relying on, on <laughs> current technological um, developments rather than this archaic system of publication that's still, um, uh, yeah, that's still like is a leftover <laughs> from the time that we had to read papers on paper, yeah. <laughs> articles on paper. Um, I think there a big reform is very welcome. Um, there's ideas about that, uh, just no um, um, clear one path yet. I think people are trying out different things. There's different kinds of publication models now, um, but it would be good to have um, maybe at some point some kind of concrete path to take um, so that people don't get lost in all the many possibilities. And that's that's another thing that um, I think is in danger about going the, the open science road, if you want to call it like that, that it, it's still quite overwhelming. Um, we, we touched upon the topic of open science um, like as a, as a vague term where there's many things that fall under open science um, and that can be a bit overwhelming. Um, also the, what it can also be overwhelming, I think is like with increased transparency comes more information out there that um, can be assessed. Will it all be assessed? Does it have to be all peer reviewed? Um, uh, how, how do we deal with that huge increase in publicly available information? Um, and how do we make sure that all that information is, is good, of good quality, um, so that we can actually work with that? I think these, these are very important challenges that, um, that require some more developments. I, I know there are some developments there already from some journals or from oh yeah, in different yeah. ways, but there we need to make steps, and I think we can greatly benefit from the technological developments that are there. Um, yeah, yeah I, that's just to add. Yeah, no, I see what you're saying. And, and I totally, yeah, I totally agree I, I, with both of you. Um, you know, there's, there's journals, I mean, like not only the publication system, uh, but I mean, there's journals like, you know, I'm trying to get this one thing uh, helping out with uh, this journal called Aperture. It's sort of, um, you know, it's an open access, but it's also, you can share, you can write about code or data, or, or you could even include scripts. Um, uh, you can have pre-registered studies, whatever. So that's, it's an attempt to sort of make a, uh, you know, sort of open up the, the publishing. Uh, but there's many different publishing models also that you could take uh, as far mm -hmm. as that. But one thing actually that you didn't mention that, that uh, um, you know, it's a wide open can of worms as well, uh, and also, I totally agree with making science, you know, not only more open and more transparent, but also more accessible, you know, changing the culture of access uh, to different yeah. groups, to different nationalities, different, you know, uh, I think that we're attempting and that we can only benefit from that. And I, and, and there's ways of doing that, that sort of feed into the whole open science philosophy. Um, but one thing that isn't really talked about that much, but I think it's a it's it's kind of a broken system. Uh, at least this is myself speaking, just just my own opinion. <laughs> is is the you know the funding system? Uh, mm. um, you know, at Max Planck and the NIH, we're kind of lucky in some sense where we have you know some sort of fixed budget, which allows us a certain amount of stability to sort of explore uh, open ended you know sort of do exploratory or 
you know, uh, very careful, a little bit, maybe less uh, high impact and more base establishing sort of research. But, you know, the incentives uh, for, you know, applying for, you know, people in the extramural world are, are constantly applying for grants and it's constantly motivating them to have these super high impact, brand new ideas, and which sort of forces people into doing a, sometimes the type of science that um, might not be good in the long run. So potentially, so the whole, but that's a bigger, that's a bigger question. I'm not about to, to change the granting system. <laughs> uh, so, but I think that touches upon what Gisela said about we need different ways of research assessment. Um, uh, at least not just at the, the funding uh, level, um, but that's an important part where like research assessment should be done better um, than just looking at these fit like wrong metrics basically. Yeah. Um, that could make a big difference already if we get a cultural shift there. Um, it, it's, it's on its way, we're not there yet. Um, yeah. Just it's hope that we can speed that up a little bit by also by not just keeping initiatives grass grassroots but really also reaching more senior people who actually do play a role on reviewing committees who do play a role in hiring people so this way also grassroots initiatives can make a difference but you have to actively um, try to reach further than just the grassroots yes yeah I totally agree and and yeah, it'll be both bottom up and top down. And and I think slowly but surely people, you know, even even funding agencies will will start to, I mean, I think they're already doing that. I mean, the whole, mm. you know, large database studies, connect home study, and, and you know, at least in the in states and, and other replication you know. studies also. So there are there are examples of uh, funding agencies um, explicitly calling for replication studies. Um, it, it's yeah. happening. It's very yeah. slow. And of course, there's never enough money. <laughs> yeah, there's never enough money, and fund everyone. And you want to be able to put the money in the place where it has the most impact. And it's mm. it's tricky to balance that with uh, having people doing work that doesn't always look like it's the most impact in the short run, but it's a exactly. long term. Yeah. Exactly, because that's that's the thing, right? We do want to fund research that's most impactful, but how do you assess which research is most impactful if? Uh, if these are the fancy, fancy um, uh, stories that might not uh, replicate, or um, do we want a more rigorous um, kind of research culture? Yeah, uh, yeah and maybe yeah. And both, right? Maybe right. we want to come yeah. of these kind of things. Um, but then it's important that at the level of the people that are reviewing, uh, for example, mm. grant proposals, but also um, job applications, yep. that they take into account these sort of different possibilities of how you can be scientifically impactful. Yeah. Exactly. So here there's, a, there's quite some, some writing talking about hidden, hidden labor of, of researchers, especially um, early career researchers that should be acknowledged. We have to find ways of acknowledging that in a meaningful way. Um, yeah, that's yeah. also that is on its way and it's necessary. Yeah, and also how do you acknowledge, for example, people that write our packages or other kinds of yeah, uh, freely exactly. available software? I mean, this is hugely important Huge. for the scientific scientific community. So this should also be weighed accordingly. But yes. but but also the, like other things that are even more hidden 
um, like like good mentoring of, of students yeah. or um, like taking part in these kind of engaging in these kind of initiatives that we build yeah. on. Um, building on a healthier research culture these things that basically only your direct colleagues might might be aware of and maybe they can tell <laughs> they can they can write it about it in in reference letters but that's not good enough to get you through a first round of applications somewhere so there needs to be um, a better way of getting at also these hidden labors um, that are that are really quite like you cannot show oh here I have done this code or this R package that you can link to but yeah what, what's yeah. your role in mentoring students that are actually not yours for example yeah, um, yeah we're trying to change the research uh, research yeah. culture and that do take part in um, in, in, in yeah. a lot of efforts for that and then These, I think always like things with mentoring or or sort of like the more organizational work you also always have to keep in mind like who are the people um, that are usually doing uh, this yeah. and uh, how does this also interact with different minority groups um, yeah yeah for so, sure yeah, maybe funding more. I mean, I think there is some going on, but in, in terms of funding infrastructure in all ways, uh, like everything from analysis methods to ways of sharing to all these things that help in the long run. Um, yeah, that's it, right? We, we have to think long-term, like we have to think of a viable uh, research culture and not just of the short-term successes that we can have. Yeah. Um, otherwise we're just addicted to publishing, I dare to say. <laughs> right. Right. Okay, a lot covered uh, today. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure this will, uh, yeah, I mean, we, we, we've gone everything from, uh, done everything from talking about your own getting started to, to changing the world, uh, at least starting <laughs> to. Um, and that's, that's great. <laughs> All right, well, well uh, and with that then, I'd, I'd just like to, to thank the both of you. Neurosalience is brought to you by the Organization for Human Brain Mapping and is produced by Anastasia Brovkin, Ekaterina Dobrikova, Katie Moran, Niels Mulert, Kevin Zetek, and me, Rachel Stickland. Music